Hi there. This is 76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. I'm Jason Blitman, and this spring, we're talking about sustainability and the earth. I'm not going to lie, it was super intimidating talking to Peter Frankopan, a global history professor at Oxford, about, well, global history. More specifically, his new book, The Earth Transformed, An Untold History, which is out now, talks about how climate change has dramatically shaped both the development and decline of different civilizations, and vice versa, all since the beginning of time. Peter's book is incredibly comprehensive, and he was so fascinating to talk to, and you'll see that I had nothing to worry about. I felt like I got a glimpse of what his students must feel like in his classes. So in addition to being a professor of global history at Oxford University, he is the author of The First Crusade, The Call from the East, The Silk Roads, A New History of the World, and The New Silk Roads, The Present and Future of the World. Now, here's my conversation with Peter Frankopan. I have a lot of anxiety to talk to a world history (laughs) professor from Oxford about this behemoth, but I'm so excited. That's really kind. Thank you for having me. I'm going to cut to the chase. Are we doomed? We're doomed, right? It's a great question, Jason. I wish I was smarter and would be able to tell you. Yeah. I'm just a very, I'm a mortal, simple historian. So I can Mm -hmm. tell you what's happened in the past. And I can tell you what I'd be worried about. People have been prophesying the end of the world literally since the moment people could write. Some of the very first texts are apocalyptic and about what happens when it doesn't rain or it rains too much or the flood of Noah and God's punishments. This is something that you find in every belief system, almost every region in the world. And here we are still standing with a bigger population than ever before. So we should probably bank on the fact that we are capable of profound persecutions and horrors. But right now, we've managed to cope with the environmental and ecological scenario that we have in front of us, that the problem is we are at some kind of tipping point. And I know some of your listeners will have very strong opinions about it. Mm -hmm. Most of them won't be scientists. But a lot of the science that looks at things like global warming, which is the kind of major touch point that people get very anxious and angry about, but also ecosystem change and collapse, it all stands to reason that turning forests into cities and putting concrete in places and infrastructure that has a cost, not just an environmental one, but an ecological one. And there comes a point where if you pollute your Garden of Eden, people move away, Mm -hmm. cities fail. And as a historian, I can tell you that in the past, some of those great cities are names that most people who are students and professors haven't heard of. Cities in Turkmenistan was that there was one in Turkmenistan called Merv that was probably the largest inhabited city in the world. And it's gone from the face of the map. And if you don't adapt because the world around you changes politically, economically, culturally, environmentally, then you know you, you disappear into the winds of history. What I find so fascinating about your perspective is, in fact, it's that it is a different perspective. I feel like we're so used to hearing from scientists. We're so used to hearing about the future. And I think I speak for a lot of us when we talk about how, as a society, we're so bad at learning from our past. The Holocaust is a terrific example. Here we are, we're seeing those nuggets of the things happening in the world again. As a historian, how do you feel looking back and being like, come on, people, pay attention to what's happened before? Like, why do you feel, why do you think that is that we just have such a hard time learning from our past? I guess we we slightly suffer from the kind of Netflix version of history where mm. we focus on individuals and we focus on great rulers or evil tyrants or one person who inflicted horror rather than institutions, rather than 
whole systems that were built up to persecute or to murder or to colonize or to take. This book that I've written is also to, to try to think things through in a different way, which is that all empires, all power is about control of resources. And those resources are always environmental. It's where is the oil and how is that all formed? Where are the croplands and where are the things that you want and how do you get them back to the center as cheap as you possibly can? And I guess that we're detached from that environmental context for everything we do. We sit in our cities and we think the rest of the world, it just works. Farms work. I don't really want to think too hard about what farmers do. We don't tend to think that farmers are the smartest people in the room. We tend to think people with PhDs and doing astrophysics rather than, my God, we are what we eat. So surely that's what the smartest people should be doing. And in fact, some many farmers are incredibly smart, but we don't value farmers in the same way we don't value carers, in the same way we don't value lots of people because we tend to think, look, give us a bit more of Elon Musk or men sounding off with strong opinions. And so some of that, I think, is to do with our detachment from what history really is and we are short-sighted, like you ask and like you say, Jason, that we tend to think that there's that, that you're never going to run out of money, you're never going to run out of stuff, that someone's going to warn you before that happens. And I suppose it's a bit like the financial crisis, that it's only when the bank says, we want our money back and you can't pay, that, that there's a real, that, that there's trouble. And that's probably roughly where we are today. But that's happened on so many times in the past. Right, uh, exactly. Civilizations, cultures and cities where it just so happens that there's too much going on, there are too many mouths to feed, and then you don't need much for big systems to collapse. And mm -hmm. you find that in Mesopotamia. One of the great early human cultures is in what's now Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates. Attracted lots of people to live there. Almost the first thing they did was cut down all the trees for fuel. Then they have to work out how to get trees and timber from elsewhere. And it doesn't take much when you've got cities that are magnificent and have lots of people living in them to then find that you can't afford to feed each other or the costs go up or your speculators and that creates inequalities. And then in the worst case scenarios, famine, disease, catastrophe happens. And that happens not just from time to time, that is our kind of human story. And mm -hmm. so going back into the past and going, the world didn't begin with the Model T Ford and the 19th right. crash. It really has been going for quite a long time before then. And maybe we should think about what happened before the American Revolution and independence, what happened in the past that we can learn from. And it's so funny that you say that, not funny, it's obvious that you say that you're a historian. When I think of history, I think about the dates I needed to remember in high school. When was the date of this war? When was this person president? I think of moments in history and how things changed the world. I don't think back to the dawn of time, which I loved that you started the book literally at the beginning. So the first chapter is called The World from the Dawn of Time, because we don't even think about our history as going back that far. And so just thinking about the book itself, The Earth Transformed, in Untold History, why was it important to you to literally start at the beginning? That's a great question. I wish I had an easy and a straightforward answer. <laughs> I guess it's when you think about it, like I said about we, we follow leaders and famous people and the great and the brave and the terrible and et cetera, and all in between. We do, for obvious reasons, we focus on our own species and on human activities. And we tend to pick up, you'll have done that in, in preschool, you'll have learned about the Egyptians and their pyramids, although I have no particular reason why that was singled out as being important. And then the Romans and the Greeks, likewise. And then there's a gap for a couple of thousand or thousand years until something right. else happens that's important. And I guess it's to, the first point is that we are really brand new as a species in, in proper earth geological terms. 
writing systems began around about 5,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, something like that. And if you just take all of that literature, the stuff that's been written by all the people who've gone before us, that accounts for naught point, bear with me, naught, naught 0.01% of Earth's history. Wow. So that's the first yeah. bit is the humility that we're really unimportant. We're, we're the apex predator right now. But all those life forms that have gone before us that were apex, not at the top anymore. That's number one. But I guess number two, that we are all the beneficiaries of these great climate changes from the past of mass extinctions of meteor strikes that took out the dinosaurs and these other massive volcanic eruptions that spewed for not thousands, tens of thousands of years and dramatically altered the climate. We all benefited from that because for almost all of Earth's history, we human beings wouldn't have been able to function. We wouldn't be able to breathe. We wouldn't be able to cultivate, et cetera. We need to be grateful for major climactic changes in the world. Right, yeah. right, exactly. But even now that it's now that it's killing us off, we have a problem. It's... Even if I'm sure that I try to be respectful, you're bound to have listeners who have a very strong view about things like evolution, right? Sure. But even if you have a very strong fundamentalist faith, the whole story that you will have been taught is the story of the creation and about mm-hmm. God created the perfect conditions for human beings and or for the perfect conditions, then put in Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's commands, they were punished ecologically. They were taken from this perfect place in the Garden of Eden where they had everything they wanted um, and were made to go work on land that didn't always unhelpful. They had to deal with starvation, they had to work, deal with food shortages. And in fact, even the next phases of what God did to punish humans for their disobedience was to send Noah's flood, which is not just sacred to Christians, that's part of the Jewish faith, that's part of Islam as well. Around And by the way, it's mentioned, as I say in the book, in the Epic of Gilgamesh and these great ancient Egyptian texts as right. well. About, look, if you get something wrong, your punishment is your world becomes precarious and it kills almost everybody. Each of us in all of our different parts of the world yeah. have benefits of where we come from. In Southeast Asia, fantastic for growing spices and for growing rice, and that can support very large populations. The island of Java, part of Indonesia, has a bigger population than Russia. And we forget that's all to do with what are the natural conditions that allow that to happen? And I guess as a historian, one of the reasons we've had the problem, apart from Putin and the Russians murdering Ukrainians and using forces, that Russia has a very strong hand at the table because it has deposits of oil and gas and the metals that no no thanks to, that's not because the Russians are smart or clever, they're just lucky. That's where the distribution of natural resources are. So starting from the beginning, if you zoom out far enough, this is how things actually look, rather than picking up with George Washington as the kind of beginning of history. Most of us think of the 20th century. So sure. my challenge as a historian is normally people want to talk about the First and the Second World War, uh, the Holocaust, for obvious reasons, Vietnam, civil rights, and stuff that is pretty fresh. But it's in it's a blink of an eye in the experiences that we can look at to get some advice around what happens if things change against your favor what should you be doing to prepare and it also goes back to the point about individualism because the world didn't start with us i was writing this book before the covid pandemic and had been advising some of the governments in the world about what the worries are about new pandemics it's great to be able to get on an airplane at a jfk and get to another part of the world but it means that you're on a plane with people who cough and when they get off the plane they cough and then the next thing we're on it again and all of those big pathogens in the past have needed vectors to transport disease. And I write about the Mongols, for example, this great empire, synonymous with violence, there's more than meets the eye. But one of the things they did, united all of Asia together and made trade and communication quicker than it had ever been before. And that meant that when plague picked up in the 1330s, it spread faster than it could be stopped. And people couldn't shut their doors quickly enough. 
And so those kinds of things are very familiar to us around how do people understand what's killing them? How do they take precautions? What kind of preventative actions can you take? How do you learn from the past? And here we go. There were better systems in Italy in the 1500s to deal with plague and pandemics than there were in the United States, Europe, China, most of the world in 2020. To your point about do we learn lessons from history, that's a pretty clear no. You said even pre-pandemic, you'd been advising governments around the world about pandemics. And it is, we have a clear roadmap of our history and we can, in theory, make change. But as we will, I'm sure, keep saying multiple times throughout this call, the world is sending us clear signs that there's a something going on. We're getting the rains, we're getting the fires, we're getting the pandemics. So whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God or you believe in science or you don't believe in science, these things around us are happening in a way that they clearly weren't five years ago. And those things that you, know, that you can cope with challenges and stress, yeah. doesn't doomed. There are all sorts of ways in which one doesn't need to live in fear. But you need to be thinking ahead, that's all. And I guess one of the signatures about cities like Tikal in what's now Guatemala or Chichen Itza in Mexico, I write about in my book, is that if you don't have your stockpiles ready, if you're not able to adapt, if you're not able to figure out that there are things going wrong, that's one problem. But second, when you're interconnected, if one pillar falls, then the whole lot comes down like a house of cards. And networks are very susceptible. I guess... The easiest way to do that for my generation was the space shuttle Challenger blew up and killed mm-hmm. the astronauts in 1986 because of an O-ring that cost about 50 cents. Right. And this huge space program costing billions and then set back the space program for decades. It's small little parts that go wrong. And I think that's the key to the vulnerabilities. It's not, I believe it's getting warmer or it shouldn't be snowing in LA in April. It's that uh, Sichuan province, which produces a lot of the technologies that we buy, Apple iPhones and laptops, and for example, and other favored manufacturers, all the factories in Sichuan, 90% of the energy in Sichuan province is powered by hydroelectric power. And when rivers run dry because it's too hot, factories had to get shut down. And that mm. means that the cost of how you're doing things in wherever you are in the US or sub-Saharan Africa or wherever you might live, listening to the podcast, your costs change and go up. And Mm -hmm. it's fairly obvious once you think about it, but we don't think about it because it just annoys all of us when we go into the store that avocados cost a bit more than they did, or you fill up your car with gas is more expensive. And you think it's part of these great market forces that will protect us. And it's a bit more complicated than that. It's like the butterfly effect. Just one, what is it? The butterfly flaps its wings in Africa. I mean, that that was that that bat in Wuhan. However that was released. And again, people have strong opinions about that. But the point was that a single event, a single point, brought the entire world to a standstill. Yeah, and your point of your point about the fifty cent O ring, right? Like it's it can be this tiny thing that really causes a huge, drastic change in society. I'll give another example, Jason. When I studied the American War of Independence, it was all about no taxation without representation and the bravery of the founding fathers, which all sounds perfectly perfectly correct and is broadly speaking right. The bit that I wasn't told about was in the 1760s, 1750, 76, there were a lot of hurricane seasons that caused huge damage, particularly in the Caribbean and the mm. southern part of the US that at that time was controlled by the French. And one of the things that the British were very angry about in London were business people in Philadelphia and in the colonies wanting to cash in on the fact that they could sell their goods into the Caribbean, particularly to Spanish and French, at massively inflated prices. Uh, and the British wanted to stop the trade from happening. And not Mm. surprisingly, the North American colonies thought, we don't want to be told what to do by the British. 
because right. their rivalries with France and Spain, A, they've got nothing to do with us. We're on the other side of the world. B, it's the king in England who we've got no control over who's making these decisions. C, we're going to get, we're going to fill our boots. It's a once in a lifetime chance to get really rich. And also, why should we be told as merchants not to trade with people who want to buy things from us? And that wasn't the driver of the formation of the first American Congress. It wasn't the key factor in the Declaration of Independence, more complicated, but it was somewhere in the mix. And had there not been those hurricane seasons, there hadn't been the damage done in the precise places at this precise time, maybe the equation of staying within the British Empire would have looked different. Maybe it would have happened slightly later, but it's one of a number of factors. And I think it's drawing a bit like a doctor. You're looking at a patient and say, there are a lot of things that are wrong. You know, which one's the most important? And I promise you that the climate, the natural context is always in there. It's yeah. never normally the one thing that brings down some great civilization because it rained too much or it didn't rain. Because humans are very ingenious in solving problems. But it's always in there as, a, as an additional level of stress that can make a bad situation worse. So that brings up an interesting point. I, the mentality of people who are, let's say, naysayers about, about supporting climate change or even believing in it. If the mentality is, it's always there or it's going to happen anyway, what's the point? Is there something in history that kind of can speak to something like that? I'm a modest, humble historian. My job is to allow people to make their own conclusions. There, yeah. there are plenty of people who can scare the living daylights out of you or tell you what it is that you should think or what's going to happen. At the end of my book, I say the things that I think are that keep me awake at night are not what the world might look like in 70 to 80 years' time. Because as a historian, I can tell you that that's never the case. No right. one would have guessed that the Soviet Union fell in the space of, a, of more or less of a week. The Berlin Wall came down, again, incredibly quickly in 1989. So making these long-range predictions is, is fraught with risk. And the things that I worry about are nuclear proliferation, uh, the hostilities that we see in lots of fragmentation, lots of parts of the world. That There was a volcano in Tonga in the South Pacific that detonated last year, last summer, that we all saw the images of what the satellite photo looked like. Right. That injected, that was about 100 times larger than the Hiroshima explosion and injected so much moisture into the air because it was an underwater volcano. That had an impact on, on the global weather conditions as a result. These ways in which we fold together. There will be all sorts of ways in which there are unpredictable outcomes, all sorts of other events that we'll have to worry about too. The, the fact that we've been there before, I guess if you were really a naysayer and not interested in climate or skeptical about it, I'd say adaptation is the key and resilience. And here are the peoples in the past where they didn't figure it out fast enough. Mm -hmm. And we do keep on standing. Some people will be fine. And some people, if you've got enough money, you can live in places that are not designed for human habitation. So, for example, if you were smart, you probably wouldn't choose to live in Saudi Arabia for the main reason there's not a single lake and not mm. a single river in Saudi Arabia. And the temperature levels consistently above 40, 45 degrees centigrade. But in Saudi Arabia, as what have it for them, the Saudis, they have vast amounts of oil. And as of three or four years ago, Saudi Arabia burns around 700,000 barrels of oil per day purely on air conditioning. So wow. if you've got enough money, you can right. make your rooms 18 degrees centigrade or whatever the equivalent would be in Fahrenheit for you guys in the US. Sure. How people like their homes nice and cool. If you're in Arizona and you can turn the air conditioning on, then great. But most people in the world can't. And mm -hmm. the worry is if people start to become richer, which as it happens, they are becoming, then the ability to put air conditioning units into the Middle East, South Asia, places that are becoming hot will, of course, require more energy. And I guess... If you're not interested in climate, that'll drive prices up. If not, then we'll have an even hotter world. And yeah. those costs and those benefits are not distributed equally. If you can afford to 
keep your living room cool all the time. But lots of people, even in the US, can't afford to do that. So inequality is a big part of what comes of the world we see already in front of us. Yeah. And I think another angle too, for me, is that it's not just the not believing in it or caring about it. It's the sort of ambivalence to it of the world is crumbling around me and I only live once. And so therefore I'm going to install the air conditioning. I'm going to not buy the electric car. I'm going, whatever that may be. Because in your book, what is ultimately challenging is that it is a lot of cause and effect, right? It's these things happen. And so then those things happen. There was a solar flare activity. And so then it did change the Western expansion. And so I think we are so ignorant as humans, because I think that we think we're, we are too great for that to happen to us. Look, everyone's reaction is going to be different. I guess there is a point if you're on the Titanic and it's sinking, you think, you know what, crack the champagne, (laughs) get the three four tech going, and let's go and jump on the beds in first class. My view would be, if you're on the Titanic, get in a lifeboat or find a door that might keep you alive until until Kate Winslet gives it up. There are all sorts of things, but the reactions are are completely understandable, that kind Mm -hmm. of the anxiety that things are so bad. And for young people, the mental health side, anxieties about climate, it's, it's a really serious, it's a really serious thing. People who say that science and technology and finance will make things better. They will do. And in fact, not just that, regulation. So in the United States, emissions are much, much lower than they were 25 years ago. There are lots of reasons to be hopeful, but the pace of change in terms of not just warming, but it's clear that there are finite resources and we've got to work out a marshal those in the best way we possibly can. It's probably not a great idea that all of us have microplastics in our blood. It's probably not a great idea that we dispose of so much food every year that we don't eat. It's probably not a great idea that we throw that much plastic away. There must be better ways in which we can manage the resources around us. And in fact, most of us in our own households are pretty good about managing Mm -hmm. what we can afford. And no one throws things out and wastes things deliberately. Actually, we're quite conscientious, but taken as a whole, small amounts of action by all of us probably, probably make things a bit better for us all. Sure. I mean, I'm grateful for you to say this Titanic example, because I think it allows me to empathize with certain people who I perhaps wouldn't have otherwise, because I think it's... We all, again, we're humans and we handle things differently. And I think the people who want to jump on the beds in first class are just as valid as the people who want to get in the lifeboat. And I know that you're not a scientist, but I'm curious if you have thoughts or feelings. You've done, you did write a 700 page book on the topic for folks who do feel like composting, donating their computer, saying, okay, if I eat less red meat or if I don't like it, just it feels so, so tiny. Based on your historical knowledge, is there anything you could speak to on the small but mighty things that we can do? I think small is always mighty. That, that's the fault of my fellow historians, of whom I'm the latest in a very long line, dating back five or 6,000 years since people started to write, which is the focus is always on leaders. Everyone wants the president to solve it. Everyone wants the prime minister to solve it. Everyone wants somebody powerful and rich. And to think that's all meaningless for me to do it. But actually, the whole point of democracy is that it's all small is mighty. It's all about your vote does count. It's all about in US elections in particular, it's a tiny number of people in specific number of counties that make an impact. In fact, as I write about in my book, the correlation between where the chalky earths are of the deep south and where coerced labor and slavery was brought to is all to do with past climatic changes. Mm -hmm. And so those decisions, they really do matter, each one of us. I do understand that the logic of saying it feels too big a problem for me to make a difference but times that by 9 billion people, and there's the solution. So I think it's feeling empowerment around 
what it means to have the right to vote, what it means to recycle, to give your laptop away, to be to be conscientious about the resources that you have available and uh, everybody eating a tiny bit different, everybody being a bit more careful about how often they flush, for example, how, often, how much mm. water they consume, taking their own mug into their favorite coffee shop to fill up rather than getting a disposable one. All of those, they all feel like meaningless gestures, but they do all, they do all add up. The fact, when I was writing the book before this one, I wrote a book called The Silk Roads, which is a big mm-hmm. history of other parts of Asia in particular. And I would quite often say to my wife late at night, I don't think I can do this. It's mm-hmm. just too big. You can't manage it. No one's going to, I didn't mind that no one's going to read it, but it just, I'm never going to get there. And she said, look, it's just every day, it's like a grain of rice. And mm-hmm. after a few days, you've got a few grains. After a couple of months, you've got quite a few grains. After six months, you have quite a lot. So you just got to keep on going. And I think that that really stuck with me, the kind of the way of thinking about small little footsteps. There's no harm in that. It doesn't have to be giant leaps. And in fact, if you read my book, some of those giant leaps taken by powerful and rich people are hugely counterproductive because they Mm -hmm. make things much, much worse. Try to make dramatic steps to fix things. Yeah. And then produce a whole sequence of unexpected reactions. And to try to keep that, so again, to keep my friends on the podcast, or hopefully friend, new friends that I'm making, <laughs> and thinking about the awful invasion of Ukraine by Russia, is that single-handedly Putin, of course, united all of NATO together, united all the West, but has sparked a green energy transition because everybody figures out another reason to get away from oil and gas. It isn't just because of, the, of carbon and emissions and burning. It's that we don't want the geopolitical lean that we have currently on us. So mm. actually transitioning to different energy sources has has another win and that those kind of unexpected consequences i think are really important and politicians and business leaders sometimes struggle to think about what that might mean so even things like the energy transition to electric vehicles which is obviously great for lots of reasons but it's going to put lots of stresses on different kinds of metals it's going to produce copper anxieties where there are not that many places on earth that produce copper in vast amounts a lot of them in places with relatively low governance and high levels of non-governmental interference. And we've got to work out now, I think, how should we try to create a regulatory system that allows us to get out what we need in a way that doesn't just allow rich people to have clean green cars, but allows everybody to be able to get to work cheaply and easily and well. And some of those things are not hard to do if you think about them, but they require a vision and they require some long-term planning. And I'm not completely unhopeful about some of that, but I think my, my my, my looking at the past is that the rises and falls are largely to do with what it is that the majority wants. Mm-hmm. And if you can get that right by as small as mighty, then you know, you're halfway there. There is something interesting too about your book. I I kept thinking about multiple things. One, how things just feel inevitable because for better or for worse, a lot of what your book is painting a picture of is historically. It is changes in the climate, in the environment, in the atmosphere that begets other changes. But I was also thinking about the flip side where we have done so much to the world around us. And so it in turn is reacting in a way that is not necessarily something that we are foreseeing is not a trend. This book inspired a conversation with some friends this weekend where we were talking about, they were talking about trends in real estate and, oh, after this year, this happened, after this year, that happened. And therefore, what I think will happen next is blank. And I was like, I gotta say, there are so many more billionaires now than there were in 2008 after that financial crisis. And 
Something as simple as that will change how the econo- how the economy turns around now. And it just it we can't rely on the trend because the trends are changing every single day. And so that I think is on one hand challenging, on the other hand optimistic because okay, the trends are changing, but that means we can still impose and enact change. I was getting to a profound question and it, <laughs> it got lost on me, but I, I, we were so energized no, about Jason, that conversation. It's such a pleasure to hear to hear a passionate reaction to something I've written. That's a honestly, it's a joy. I'm not going to interrupt. I'm not going to interrupt. You keep you keep you keep going. It's, it's great. I think that is what history is for: is to put yeah. us back into the canvas and say, "I need to detach myself from my day to day and try and think a bit bigger and try and think about." How do we all fit in? What should we, what are the real problems? And and where are those moments in history that we relate to and tell us something about today? And how do people in the past solve problems? How do the, where do those Vikings come from? Why were Mm -hmm. they no Vikings before about the year 800? Why do they not, why do they give up on Newfoundland? You know, Spoiler and, alert to our listeners, it was because of a crop failure. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, that kind of idea about overfishing or of chopping down too many things or exhausting your resources, it's something that has such deep roots. Yeah. And the anxieties around that are ones that were shared by loads of people in the past. But I think, like I said at the beginning, we could look at the other way around and to go, we're still standing. You know, here we are. Things are mm-hmm. looking okay. We, lots of things going wrong. But by and large, we we have worked a way of getting on with each other, more or less. But that's quite unusual in historical terms. It's quite unusual to have these long periods of peace. The bit of fragmentation that, that I, we can recognize around us today with China, Russia, Ukraine, in the Middle East, changing direction. The world that we're living in is changing organically around us extremely quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, just again, on the demographics, you can see populations in Africa doubling or trebling in the next century on straight line terms. And yeah. in most rich developed countries, populations are, are falling and fewer people is not a bad thing environmentally, it's not a bad thing for resources, but it's maybe a, maybe it's not so great if you're an investor or you're buying real estate because there are fewer of us around. That's where you really messed me up, Peter, is that at the end of the book, when you were like, the climate is going to change whether we like it or not. And it's going to be Mother Nature who tells us how it is. And it's and if we are over-consuming, overpopulating, whatever, the earth is going to say, you can't do that by another volcanic eruption, by endless hurricanes to start to wipe the people out to say, chill out. Well, it's just biology. You know, of course, that, that biology works. Right, That's why we're right. here. You know, we're the beneficiaries right. of that. Ideally, keep an eye out for the icebergs. Don't mm-hmm. steer into it. When you see it, get out of the way as quick as you can. Stop trying to look at Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet on the deck because if that guy in the crow's nest had passed the That's message kind of bit quicker, you do hit the iceberg. Work out where the lifeboat is and get in it. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm optimistic, resilient about the future. I don't think we need to be chaotic and worrisome, but I think there are a lot of things that we should be thinking about. The reality is in a globalized world, we are all connected by these things that link us together and disease and pandemics are one of those, but climate and weather is another one. Yeah. And good history makes you ask questions. And I think what I hope the reader at the end of the book is that they're asking questions that they then want to answer themselves rather than trying to sell them my answer. Can I ask you what questions you're asking? One of the ones is that because of other work that I do, I'm deeply concerned about the trajectory of liberal democracies. Mm. And I'm curious to know how young people who are highly activist as environmentalists, but also across lots of other things to do with gender rights, sexualities, etc., and push quite hard. What is it that young people see as a long-term solution? And is there a political price that you pay for that? Because as it so happens, 
you have a, you have had a geriatric system in the US where all of your political leaders, not just the president, but all of the leaders in, on in, in Congress, the most senior ones are above above the age of eighty, not just above the age of seventy. So, right. what do you do if you're eighteen, twenty five years old, and think I want change, and I want change more quick more quickly than I'm getting, and I want special interests to not be able to build up pension pots and to be able to influence the politics in the way that takes too long and doesn't get things fixed. So I'm thinking and wondering and working through what does that look like? Greater vocalization of wants and needs. Who do you vote for if you're young and encourage them to have a climate agenda, which even the big political parties in the States have not been huge on? A lack of a middle ground where people saying, I recognize that people have different opinions. We're going to try and pull people into the middle. We're not going through that phase right now in any of the developed rich countries. And that's probably not a great place to be in, given some of the other existential things around us too. Um, yeah. You, you know, did I, just a few minutes ago say that we haven't seen this length of peace for a long time. So it almost seems like that's not a, quite a good thing. You know, my, my world of Russia, some very clever scholars who I respect are saying maybe the Cold War never even ended. And mm. that would have been un, that oh, would have yeah. been unimaginable to say that a year and a half ago, before the invasion of Ukraine. Now the kind of, the idea that the world is falling into different camps and the people we don't pay much attention to, trying to think about what does the war in Ukraine mean? What does change in the US mean if you're in Central America, if you're in Southeast Asia, you're being asked to pick sides. I think that those kinds of things, we should wake up and think about a global world. So in my book, again, I tried to not just write about Europeans and, and people in North America. It's about the global story of why did chiefdoms emerge in Tonga or in, the, in in Polynesia? Why was there high levels of mortality in Japan when people started to live in cities? How did disease mm -hmm. kick through? Why was it these great cities like Angkor, with the great Angkor Wat temple in what's now Cambodia, was a huge population, maybe half a million, maybe even a million people, and it's now a kind of shadow. Beautiful, it looks great on Instagram. It's a great place to go and visit. Wow. But how do they not react in time to still be these great cities? How do they get supplanted? And those kinds of things, I think you can only start by by learning from the past to work out what comes next. Yeah, right. It's all we have. It's all we've got. Right? We don't know what tomorrow brings. We can learn from yesterday and we have to move forward. And to your wife's point, I think I will forever think about those grains of rice and how at the end of the day, like every single day, the grains of rice will build into something else. The largeness of the world around us, it could be super overwhelming, but... If every day we put a little grain of rice on the scale, we can start to tip it. Jason, um, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, but also to read my book. It's a real joy. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Peter. Such a pleasure. The Earth Transformed, an untold history. And I look forward to hearing about what's next when the next thing comes along. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your day. Peter. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Jason. Thanks a lot, Matt, too. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. The Earth Transformed and Untold History by Peter Frankopan, which Publishers Weekly's starred review says is elegant and cogently argued and illuminates an age-old and urgently important dynamic, is available now wherever books are sold. 76 West is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blitman. Our audio engineer is Matt Temkin. Make sure to check out our other episodes, and if you like what you're hearing, rate us, review us, share us with your friends, and don't forget to like and subscribe so you'll be the first to know when the latest episode drops. Until next time. 